Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. This is Colin Miller. Keith Mankin's off today, but he'll be back next week. Today, we're going to take a brief departure from our normal routine for a smaller mini-episode. In just one week, the moon's shadow will be passing over the continental U.S. If you've never seen a solar eclipse and you're still not sure if it's worth all the hype, stay tuned. Our guest today, Dr. Gordon Telepin, is a plastic surgeon in Decatur, Alabama. That's his day job. Gordon is also a passionate amateur astronomer. He's traveled to the middle of the ocean and as far as the plains of southern Africa to see a solar eclipse. And his knowledge of eclipses would probably give Neil deGrasse Tyson a run for his money. Gordon has even developed a geolocation app for viewing the eclipse that's being used by NASA next week at two of their observation sites. This episode was fascinating and it was a heck of a lot of fun. With that said, let's get started. Gordon, welcome to the show. We're just so happy to have you and really appreciate you coming on at the last minute here. Uh, Colin, I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me like you did to give me the opportunity to talk about this eclipse. This is a big, big event for our, our country. So, no, I appreciate you. Well, let's start there. Tell our viewers, you know, people are busy. I mean, you are a, a plastic surgeon in private practice. Yeah, you, you got a lot going on. So do a lot of our viewers. If anyone's close enough to make it to this eclipse on the 21st, why is this one so, such a rare opportunity and why should they consider it? Well, um, you, you have to witness your first eclipse to know why you want to see another one. You know, there's a, there's a little saying in the eclipse chasing world is once you go see your first total solar eclipse, you immediately go home and start to plan when you can see your second one because yeah. it's, it's an overwhelming event really to be, to be a part of it. It's a, it's a beautiful, um, uh, mechanical thing that nature does for us. And we're smart enough to know where to be to get into the path of the shadow of the moon. And, and when you get there and you experience it, it's pretty overwhelming and, and you'll, you'll want to get to another one. Well, tell us about your first one. I mean, how did you get into this? So when I was a child, I was living in New Jersey. This is really funny. Um, there was an eclipse, and I didn't know about it. I was about six or seven years old that was actually crossing Canada. But just like this eclipse, when you have a path of totality, there's a huge swath of land on each side of the totality that will see a partial eclipse. So you're not going to have the moon completely obscure the sun. But if you could look at the sun with the proper solar glasses, you would see the sun become um, smaller and smaller as the moon moves over it, but never become a direct hit that you get to see the corona and have a eclipse sun. So anyway, I was in New Jersey. The total eclipse was in Canada. New Jersey was going to have a partial eclipse. My father knew about it. So he actually brought little welding glasses to our summer vacation on the beach in Jersey. So I, as a child, I saw my first partial eclipse and it kind of stayed in my mind. Now, I didn't do anything further about it through all of college and all of medical school because it was just too busy, and then five years of general surgery. But the next time I really remember wanting to get to one was in 1991. 
the eclipse chasers uh, refer to the 1991 eclipse as the big one, quote unquote, because it went through Mexico and it was a six minute and 55 second totality in Mexico. And we can talk more about that later, but that's a really long eclipse. But I couldn't go. The reason I couldn't go, I was in the first week of my second year of my plastic surgery residency. Well, that's a pretty good reason. No, yeah, that's right. There's no re there's no way you get a vacation in the first week of uh, the second year of your plastic surgery residency. So I watched that one on TV and I was dying because I wish I could have gotten to it. The second one that was really on my radar screen was in 1998. There was an eclipse that crossed Aruba. And the problem with that one was I was just beginning the fifth year of my solo private practice plastic surgery in a small town in Decatur, Alabama. And I had no partner, no real coverage. You know, I was on call 24-7 for my patients. Sure. So I really couldn't take five or six days off to go to Aruba. The other thing about picking eclipses is when you're traveling a long distance, uh, one of your priorities is picking a site that has reasonably good chance of good weather. And Aruba can be pretty shaky in April when that eclipse was. So the next big one was 2001 crossing Africa, Zambia, Africa, in June, right in the middle of the African dry season. Wow. So if you're going to go long distance to go to see an eclipse, you want to have a good high percentage chance of seeing it. So in Africa, in the dry season, you have over a 95% chance that you're not going to get rained out. You're going to be able to see it. So I made my decision to go to that one in 2001, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. Um, so that's how I got into eclipse chasing from a child missing some ones that were reasonably close, but my training and my practice you know, didn't allow me to get to it. And then you know, finally getting one that uh, it all kind of aligned where I could get out of my, my town for a week, um, go to see a long eclipse that was about three minutes and 35 seconds, the one in Zambia, and in the middle of the dry season, having a really high percentage shot at seeing it. So that's my first one. All right. So we got a few more things to talk about here. You know, the weather's one of them, um, right. the, you know, the logistics of, of getting to one of these. But let's start with what is it like? For those of us who have never seen one before, why is it so special? And it's not, you're not just staring up at the sun. There's things that happen around you, right? I mean, what, what's happening when, when you're right in the middle of the totality or looking at it? Right. So the first part of that, Colin, is actually the anticipation of knowing a little bit about what's going to happen with the shadow of the moon and putting yourself in a position on Earth that within a couple of hours of your setup time, you're going to be in the shadow of the moon. So one of the thrills about it is just the geolocation, that we have enough data that we can know where to go. So you show up at this spot. It's the morning or the afternoon. It's a bright day. It looks like any other day uh, in that particular spot. But yet there's this ominous feeling that you know something wonderful is going to happen. And then so then you get to first contact and everybody's always excited about first contact. That's when the moon first touches the sun. And and after a few seconds, 10 or 15 seconds, you start if you have a telephoto lens, you start to see the bite out of the sun as the moon's 
moving over it. And then you wait through all the partial phases when you go from first contact to second contact, and second contact is when totality starts. And you can see as you're watching the moon crawl across the sun that it's going to be a direct hit. You just see that it's lined up, that at some point they are going to be overlapping each other and you're going to be in totality. So the interesting thing that you brought up is between first contact and second contact, as the moon continues to cover the sun, there's things that we talk about that are called the partial phase phenomena. And I love the partial phase stuff. You can feel the temperature dropping because so much of the sun is being covered that the infrared uh, radiation from the sun is, is, is decreasing the amount that gets to Earth and you actually feel the temperature drop. The temperature can drop 10 or 12 degrees over that period of time, and it's a nice, steady drop, and um, you actually feel it. And then about 10 minutes before totality, you start to um, see that the lighting is starting to change, but it doesn't really get dramatic till about five minutes before totality. And between about five and eight minutes before totality, it's getting dark enough that animals are are, are believing that nighttime is going to come. So if you're in a natural environment, it's the middle of the day, but the crickets are starting to go crazy. So the first part is actually very exciting. Wow. I mean, that's just amazing. And I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned we're smart enough and we have enough information now to predict these, but all of our ancestors through human history that just got, you know, got this by surprise. I can't imagine what it was like for some, some of them. It's just, it had to be terrifying and exciting and, you know, everything wrapped up in one. But tell us, these things aren't very simple to predict, are they? There's a lot of mathematics and know exactly what, one where you need to be, but when you need to be there. That's exactly right. So the math has, has definitely been worked out. And, you know, I'm not an archaeologist by any means, but, you know, there's some drawings in, in ancient archaeology um, texts that show people drawing pictures of an, of eclipses and and that maybe they knew how to predict them and and then it fell out of our knowledge base as humans for a while and and then got picked up i mean i don't know but yeah basically the formula is out there that predicts the rotation of the earth and the rotation of the moon the axis of the moon and where we're going to be and uh, and that the shadow is actually going to hit the earth because you know, the moon is making a shadow that is whipping through space all of the time. So there's always a shadow on the backside of the moon that is going just out into outer space unless there's something in the way. So with a total solar eclipse, I mean, that's what's basically happening. Every, happening. Everything is perfectly lined up. The sun is lined up with the moon and the moon is lined up with the earth. And that shadow whips through space and then it hits Earth. And and for this eclipse, it's going to hit Earth in the Pacific Ocean. And then it's going to hit the coast of Oregon, going to cross the entire country. Uh, Twelve states actually have the center line within their state borders. And then it will exit in, in South Carolina. And so the point is, as I was talking about before, is to get to totality. So when all of those partial phases finish at second contact the moon will completely obscure the sun. And at that point, the lighting is uh, so much more dimmer because the corona is only about the brightness of a full moon. You can look at it with your naked eye and it's just beautiful to behold the fully eclipsed sun with the corona in the sky. It's 
it's kind of like nothing you've ever seen before, really. Well, we talked about this just before we got started. Um, a good friend of mine who's a neurosurgeon is going to fly his family halfway across the country to see one of these. And he was almost angry at me because I was considering not going, even though I'm about a three and a half hour drive away. And I said, you know, it's a busy day. I've got a lot going on. He said, no, you've got to do this. This is a really rare opportunity. And I went online and that's where I stumbled upon the interview with you. Right. And it, it, it really is a rare opportunity. Gordon, if you know, I'm, I'm going to get in the car that day, I'm going to head on down is there something else I should bring with me? I mean, obviously, safety uh, 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 goggles for my eyes, but seeing the corona with your naked eyes, is it worth having a telescope with a, a light filter? Is it worth having binoculars with the same thing? Or is it good enough just to get down there? You know, that's a good question. So there is a lot of an eclipse that you can enjoy that you don't need a high-powered camera for, and you certainly don't need a high-powered uh, telescope for. At this point, if somebody's just preparing for this eclipse, it's too late to gather the gear that you need for sophisticated eclipse photography. All of the camera solar filters in the country are sold out, so even if ah. you wanted to get one, you couldn't get one right now. So there's a couple of things. You get to the path of totality and you're watching the partial phases with your solar glasses on your eyes. And it's really wonderful to see that last little final crescent when the sun is this little sliver and it's getting dark around you. And this is not just a regular darkness, Colin. It's like looking through um, sunglasses that have a very light gray silver um, tone to them because when the sun is no longer a big globe and the light is coming through the atmosphere as a slit and your eyes have been adapting slowly through all of this time, you start to have a little blander color sensation. So everything looks a little grayer. It's not only dimmer, it's a little silvier, silvery grayer. So that's a natural you know, eye phenomenon. You don't need a camera, you don't need a telescope to see that. Then when totality hits, it's beautiful to see the black dot in the sky of the, of the black moon because there's no light on it. And the and the corona around it. And what's interesting is the corona is constantly in motion, but you're not seeing the motion of the corona. But what you are seeing is the atmospheric distortion of the corona. Kind of the same thing why why stars twinkle at night. The atmosphere makes the corona kind of pulsate. So it almost looks like it's alive. Wow. Um, and so the other thing is it is really big. You, you don't see things in the sky that look this big right I, I, at the azimuth of the sky or way above your head. So you know how a, a full moon looks really big on the horizon because you have some something to compare it to. But up in the middle of the sky, it doesn't look that big. Well, picture the full moon in the sky at, at the diameter or the angular diameter you would normally see it. But now picture it being about four times bigger because you have at least two or three lunar diameters on each side of it, that's the corona. So it's a really big celestial event to watch with naked eye. You don't see things in the sky 
naturally that are that big. So that's the naked eye. So the other thing is during totality, the light is so much dimmer. Like I said, it's about the dimness of a full moon that it is safe to look at the corona with binoculars without a filter. Only during that time, only during totality. And that really brings out the detail of the corona even more with your than your naked eye. So you don't have to have expensive binoculars. Anything you have at home, just hold up and take some peeks at the corona. Now – the other naked eye thing you can do during totality, and, and this is, this is yeah, really— Let me stop you for just one second um, sure. while I'm thinking about it. If you're not right in the middle, but you're maybe uh, yes. you know, a little closer to the edges of the band, can you still appreciate as much of the corona? Absolutely. The okay. corona does not change its shape uh, until you get to the very edges of the path of totality. So there's no—it's not like you're going to see that it's offset in any direction because you're a little north or a little south of the center line. It'll basically look centered to you unless you're on the real edges of the path. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so the other naked eye event that I wanted to get to, so for people who are preparing right now and are not going to go with a lot of gear, so picture this. The path from about um, the middle of the country to South Carolina is uh, about 70 miles wide. Um, So you're sitting – you're going to be standing in the shadow of the moon. But the sunlight is going to be around that shadow. The shadow is called the umbra. So you're standing basically in the middle of the umbra, but it's still daytime. So the sun is lighting the perimeter of the shadow all the way around you. And so you need to take time in the middle of the eclipse to spin around and look at whatever horizon you could see for your observing position. Because if you were in a flat field, it would look like sunset colors 360 degrees around you. It's, it's really spectacular. Wow. wow. And there's something else that you talked about. And this may come into the category of mysteries and things that we still don't understand about this. And it's these shadow snakes. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, shadow snakes. So, so that was uh, the terminology uh, used by the Smarter Everyday guy, Destin, who's a great guy, by the way. I really enjoyed working with him. But the technical name really is shadow bands. And what shadow bands are, and I saw them in 2002 in Africa, and they were really phenomenal to witness. So picture what happens When the sun is a big globe in the sky, it is like a light bulb radiating light in all different directions. So it's very diffuse and it comes in at many angles. And then uh, when the sun hits the earth, it's also reflected back to you by atmosphere. But when you get into the last 60 seconds of the partial phases, so you're 60 seconds before C2, the sun is now a slit. It is not a globe of light anymore. So the sun is coming to the earth as a slit of linear light. And when that light goes through the hot and cold or the warm and cold cells in the atmosphere, which have different densities to the air, the the cooler air bends the light. So as it goes through these layers, the theory is that bending of that linear light makes these little fine very light colored gray shadows on the ground you don't look at the at the you don't look at the crescent phase you don't look at the sky for shadow bands you look at the ground and i tell people to bring a white sheet with them because they are very low contrast i mean they are really really light gray 
and they move in a in in a very complex direction. So you need something white or light colored in front of you if you're if you're going to see them, uh, and because they're only going to be in that last sixty seconds before C two, and then totality hits and they're gone, and then right after C three third contact when the sun first pokes out again on the other side of the moon, you have about another 60 seconds to see shadow bands because now the sun is that slit on the other side of the moon. So it's very important to look for them and we can talk about it later, but my app reminds people to look for them because a lot of people are so enthralled with the event and they're looking at the crescent in the sky. They're looking at the lighting around them. The crowd is going crazy. They're hearing crickets go crazy. They see the changes in ambient light. They will not be looking at the ground at that point for these very faint shadow bands. So uh, unless you have somebody with experience with you, you to know to look for them at the right time, you want to be reminded to look for them because they're wonderful to see. They don't, have an, they don't happen at every eclipse and they don't happen at every observing location because it depends on the atmosphere directly above you when you're in the path. Wow. Well, you mentioned your app. Actually, I want to get to that now because you're a busy surgeon. You got your own practice. You have a lot going on. But somewhere in the midst of all that, you've come up with an app for pinpointing your, the, the exact location you need to be at. And then I assume it also includes some other information, some of which we've talked about here today. Right. Tell us about this. And NASA has some interest in it, too. Tell us about that. Sure. So this goes back. The story actually goes back a little bit to 2001. So let me take you back then. When I went to the eclipse in 2001, my wife and I practiced our photography routine for that eclipse because I model myself after a NASA scientist called Fred Espinick from Goddard Space Flight Center. He's retired now, but he's one of the best eclipse photographers out there. So we went to Africa. We thought we were prepared for this eclipse. When it starts to happen, you completely lose your ability to focus on your chores. And we almost missed some of the crucial photography we wanted to get at that eclipse because we we're just overwhelmed by the, the event. Wow. So I knew, I knew in then, standing in that field in Africa, that somebody had to come up with something to help eclipse chasers do photography. So I got back to the States. And I started to work with a programmer, and I made the first eclipse timer, the first talking eclipse timer for my 2002 eclipse. So it was the first version. It was all manual. You had to put your contact times in manually after you looked them up. But it was the first one that would talk to you. Once you programmed it manually, my voice was recorded in it, and it would count down the countdown times for you. It would remind you to look for the partial phase phenomena. It would mark the mid-eclipse point and it would get you through the eclipse. I didn't use it in 2006 because I did that I did that eclipse on a cruise in the Mediterranean. So since you're on a cruise ship, the contact times are not exact because the cruise ship is going to keep on moving. So I couldn't really use the eclipse timer for that one. And then I had to wait for the mobile app um, um, space to sort out. So now that it has sorted out to basically Apple and Android, last summer I got another programmer from the States. Wait a second, you were using a Palm Pilot or something originally, right? That's exactly right. The first one, I should have said that, the first one was programmed for Windows 98 and okay. Windows Pocket PC that ran on the first touchscreen 
iPack, um, compact iPacks. So it was ancient technology. For all the of our first, medical students, they'll have to Google that, you know, <laughs> know what we're talking about. But <laughs> the first iPack had 64 megabytes of um, uh, memory total. But anyway, so after mobile devices sorted out, I found another programmer. He's actually from Alabama. He's a great guy, a good programmer. And we rewrote it and redid it for the mobile devices. And mobile devices are so much more powerful, gave me so much more options that I was able to add a, a lot of um, really good features, the first of which you just brought up, which is geolocation. So with my app, if you know where you're going to go to the path, you get yourself in the path, you tap on the geolocate button, the app finds your location based on all of the GPS things that app or that phones use to find your location. Then it calculates your contact times because that formula that you and I talked about before is within the app. So as soon as it knows your location, it can calculate your four contact times and mid-eclipse. And then with one more tap, it will load it into the timers. And once those four times are loaded into the timers, the app is armed and I will, I will talk you through the entire eclipse from first contact to fourth contact. Oh, very cool. Well, that's one of the things I'll be bringing with me for sure. And NASA has some interest in this as well. What's, what's going on there? Sure. So I, uh, I, I have a lot of contacts at NASA because I live, uh, live next to Marshall Space Flight Center. And one of my main contacts is a solar scientist. And I've been in touch with her since 2000, since I wanted to go to my first eclipse. So they're running two NASA sites for, uh, for VIPs and for students, one in Clarksville, Tennessee, and one in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which is the point of greatest eclipse. So the scientists who are running the site like my app because I've given them talks on photography and they want my app to be used so they don't have to worry about the basic announcement details. You know, the announcements to look for all the things that happen in the partial phases, the countdowns to totality, the reminder to remove your glasses. My app also reminds you when it's safe to remove your glasses and when you must put them back on. So they don't have to worry about that. And then they don't have to worry about marking mid-eclipse and looking for the horizon. So all of the basic announcements you would want to make an eclipse in an eclipse is in my app. So they're going to run it through the PA system at these two sites and let my app do the basic announcements. And then they will have a microphone. So if they want to embellish anything or make any additional announcements, they're welcome to do that. But this would at least be the reminder for them at the big points of the eclipse that they don't have to worry about it. Well, if they have enough confidence in your app, then uh, I think I do too. That's impressive. I mean, it, it's uh, obviously a tremendous amount of work and, uh, and effort you put into this. It is. And I, I've tested it like crazy, Colin. You know, I'm lucky that I developed this for this eclipse where I am a two and a half hour drive from the path. So I could drive up to the path and test it at all stages of the development. And in fact, I could drive to a place in the path that's in Tennessee which was in the path, but also where the time zones changed from central time to eastern time. So I could also test my, 
my app and the ability of smartphones to correctly register the time zone change and make sure my app adjusted for that. Because, you know, one of the tricky things about this eclipse, Colin, is that this eclipse is crossing all four time zones in the United States. So people at different areas of the country have to take their time zone into consideration sure. because all, all of the interactive maps on the internet will present the first set of data in what's called Coordinated Universal Time, UTC time, which is the time for the Royal Observatory, you know, in, in London, Greenwich. England. Yeah. That's exactly right, at, at longitude prime meridian zero, zero. So that is not based on time zones, but we live based on time zones. So you have to make the proper corrections from UTC. And my app does that automatically for you by, by um, sensing what time zone your phone is sensing. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to put that up in the show notes for us so we can, um, you know, point our viewers to that if they're interested. And um, a couple more things once we wrap up here, but we've got a few more minutes here, Gordon. And, and sure. give us an idea just, you know, Keith and I have talked about this a little bit on the show, but the idea of having passions outside of medicine, having things that you look forward to, that you work on that are outside of your job. Tell us about your philosophy there and, you know, how this helps you, but, you know, why it's important even to your practice. Well, I mean, I think you guys have probably talked to other physicians who understand how hard being a physician and, and being a surgeon is. And, and you have to have interests outside to kind of break away from just being a doctor. And, you know, one of my interests is amateur astronomy. I have a dome. I actually have an observatory in my backyard. And uh, I follow NASA. I've followed the space program all through my life as, as a little kid. I remember the moon landings. So it's wonderful for me to live next to Marshall Space Flight Center and meet astronauts and, and NASA scientists. I've been to two shuttle launches, space shuttle launches, and two space shuttle landings. So, I mean, this is just what I do. But, I, you know, a plastic surgeon has to be an educator too because you have to explain complex operations to people and I like to educate and and I think that's what I like about solar eclipses there's many levels to it and I love to give talks about it I I can give doc talks on a basic level or I can give talks on a scientific level or I can do talks on how to f do the photography so it's just part of the education process of being a plastic surgeon day to day and then wanting to educate people about something else. That's fantastic. Well, as we wrap up here, we're going to talk about the day, the 21st, what you should be ready for, and kind of remind our viewers of some of the things we talked about here. Um, let, briefly, the safety glasses. Uh, you know, I've read some reports that there's some counterfeit ones out there. Some might not be safe. How concerned should people be, especially if they're bringing their kids? Uh, you know, you said a lot of the stuff sold out, especially the lenses for cameras, but um, what should... What should they be concerned about or should they uh, with safety protection? Yeah, well, they should be. So for the entire eclipse where it's bright, the partial phases, you need to be using certified safety glasses. Now, there is a new certification for for glasses, and it's in it's an ISO number which I don't have memorized, but it would be printed on the inside of the glasses and it would be on the advertisement for the glasses that you're purchasing. So you want to make sure you're purchasing um, ISO certified glasses. There are two very reputable companies 
in our country that produce most of them, even if they're sold by other people. And that's American Paper Optics out of Tennessee and Rainbow Symphony out of California. So you want to buy good quality, you know, regular cheap solar glasses. They'll be about $2 a piece. And you use them through all of the partial phases before and after totality. During totality is the only time it's safe to look with your eyes. And that's between second contact and third contact. And again, if you have my app, you would geolocate where your observing position is. And my app will calculate the times for you. And it'll make an announcement after second contact when you can take your glasses off. And it will make an announcement eight seconds before third contact when you should put your glasses back on. Okay, well, that's important. And yeah, I was thinking about the weather too, and I'm thinking about preparing for that day. This reminds me, when I was younger, um, I flew down twice to Cape Canaveral to watch the space shuttle take off, and each right. time it was canceled at the last minute. Um, Correct. One was weather there, and then I think the second time it was weather at the emergency landing stations all around the world. Right. And it was a bummer. I mean, it was it was really disappointing. Um, now, when I was in college, I, I worked for the airlines, so I got to fly for free. So I, I didn't waste all the money going down there, but I really wanted to see it. And of course, that's not something you can see anymore. That's right. But, uh, you know, you, we're going to look at the weather that morning, the night before. Is, is there a, a should people take, take a chance anyway, even if there's thunderstorms, um, if it's a little overcast, are they still going to be able to see something? What should they be concerned about there? Yeah, they need to be concerned about the weather. So but the, this is a little different than a shuttle launch, though, because this is going to happen no matter what, right? You can't cancel sure. it. So it's going to happen. So you do need to monitor the weather, and you do have to make a decision the day before or at least the morning before to try to drive to a spot that's at least going to have broken clouds. You don't want to drive into the middle of a low-pressure system where it's going to be rainy because you're not going to see it. It's a daytime event. I mean, it will get dark because you're still going to be in the path, but you're not going to see the partial phases and you're certainly not going to see totality. So that's one of the reasons why they call it eclipse chasing, because at the last moment, people might jump in a car and drive 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 miles east or west or north or south yeah. to look for a break in the clouds. Another reason... Uh, why having an app with geolocation is important. So picture this. Let's say you had a prime observing location and you want to go there and everything's all set up and you want to get there an hour beforehand. And, you know, the partial phases take about an hour and a half before um, second contact. But if that doesn't work out, you're going to be hitting a, your car and try to, trying to drive to an area where there's some broken clouds. So you could jump out of your car Five minutes before second contact, just to see totality. I mean, that's the goal. Not set up any camera equipment, not do anything. Just try to make it an, a, um, an, a bare, naked eye event or a binocular event. So again, um, you, you, my app would geolocate for you and have the immediate second contact time for you. So you could jump out of your car and be in the countdown one minute before second contact. So that's why they sometimes call it eclipse chasing. The whole country can't be in a bubble of high pressure. So there are going to be some people who are going to have to be on the move. And now I'm hoping in the southeast we have clear weather, but that's tough in the southeast in, in August. 
Well, having you come on the show, you've already personally helped me. We just went on Google Earth and looked at the place where I'm going to be headed, which is uh, heading down I-95 to a lake in a park down in South Carolina. And uh, I'm going to put a little more time into that and plan some some other routes around there. Because right. as you mentioned, there's going to be a lot of people coming down there too. That's so exactly something right. something to think about. Um, don't just drive there, you know, have a plan ahead of time. So to finish things up here, Gordon, uh, let's go over that list again of things that you should definitely have. I mean, we've talked about the ISO certified uh, safety goggles, the white blanket. Um, and um, what, what would your checklist be just for your basic everyday viewer, um, maybe not even taking pictures? Sure. So if this is going to be a driving eclipse for you, you you want the basic thing like some basic supplies, you know, water and some snacks because it's going to be an all day affair and I bet you're going to be stuck in traffic. So make sure your car is ready. Have your solar glasses for everybody. Have a white sheet for you to place in front of you so that you can look for shadow bands. Um, I, you know, I suggest having my timer app. I think it will help you go with a compass. It's also important to go with a compass so that if you're setting up at the last minute or if you're setting up early, you'll know what, what we call the azimuth of the sun is going to be. So you know which way you need to point. I know it seems obvious when the sun is in the sky, but you, if you're getting to a position early, you want to make sure the sun is not going to be obstructed by a tree line or a building or something like that because it's going to move over the first hour and a half. Um, so, you know, that's really it. And then um, binoculars if you're going to do some naked eye observing. So it's basic supplies, solar glasses, a white sheet, somewhere to get timing for the, for the eclipse. Um, binoculars and a compass, and, and I think you, you'll have a good time. Check, check, check. Got it. And um, Gordon, where can people learn more about you? Where can they find this app? What's it called? And uh, where, where should they be headed? Yeah, so the best place, I mean, kind of command central for everything is my personal website, which I run, which is called www.solareclipsetimer.com. So that's the name of the app, Solar Eclipse Timer, and that's also the name of the website website, solareclipsetimer.com. Now from that site, they can get both to the Apple store to download the app. It's $1.99 and the Google store download the app, which is $1.99. They will also have links to my photography lectures and my video lectures because I have my lecture series on that website. And the, the third thing is they'll have links to my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel called Foxwood Astronomy where I have about 22 or 23 videos that are dedicated um, to this eclipse. So they can learn a lot from my YouTube channel, which is also linked from my main website. So I think everything starts at my main website. Beautiful. We'll put links to that up there just in case anyone's driving, listening to this right now. And with that, Gordon, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for accepting my last-minute invitation and making some time for us. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed having you on. Well, thank you. I appreciate talking to you about it. You asked uh, really excellent questions, and I, I just hope we inspired people to go to this and maybe answered some questions and, and helped some folks out. I think we have, and I know I am. And uh, with that, uh, that's Dr. Do Gordon Telepin. Thanks for coming on. And everybody, go check out his website. Go check out the show notes so you can learn a little bit more about it. And with that said, wherever you are, whenever you'll take care, this is Colin Miller, not Keith Mankin this time because he had uh, another meeting today, but uh, we'll see you here next time. Take care. 
Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.